Hey there, welcome back to Candidate Me. I'm Charlotte's only official, not real, candidate for mayor, Tom Bullock. And if I was somehow elected mayor, which in no way could actually happen, once a month, I would have to run a meeting just like this. First, we'll hear a brief presentation from the staff to give us background on the petition. <laughs> Wait, did a council member just burp into the microphone? Sorry, then Mayor Dan Clodfelter, please continue. After that, we'll hear from the speakers for the petition. Ooh, and then who do we hear from? Those, if there are any, against the petition. Welcome to the exciting world of city council zoning meetings. But stop for a second and consider this. These meetings are where the literal future of Charlotte is decided. It is here the city council, and on rare occasions the mayor, vote on just what can be built where. Businesses, apartments, homes, and storefronts, all this shapes the city and the neighborhoods therein. All that has a knock-on effect for traffic, utilities, jobs, property values, tax income, and on and on and on. Still, for spectators, these zoning meetings can be pretty boring to watch. Until they're not. For, like all votes, zoning votes have consequences and repercussions. They can turn political allies into enemies. The old saying is you don't pee in the well you drink from. Leave incumbents feeling under attack. I, I cannot tell you the ugly emails I got, the, the cruel emails I got. And help launch a political challenge from within the same party. There's been a lack of accountability, accessibility, and engagement the last couple of years in our district. All because of a single vote on a single old house and the five acres it sits on. This is Candidate Me. Episode 5, The Political Fight for Little Charlotte. There are 12 members of the Charlotte City Council, the mayor, four at-large members elected citywide, and seven members elected from the political districts that carve up the city. And if you want to find a near-perfect microcosm of Charlotte itself, just start at the top of the list. District 1 includes half of Uptown, and neighborhoods like Noda, Plaza Midwood, Dilworth, Myers Park, Eastover, Elizabeth, and Cherry. U.S. Census data tells me more than 105,000 people live in the confines of District 1, young and old, rich and poor, longtime residents, and new arrivals. Throw in a sizable minority population, and District 1 is basically Charlotte in a nutshell. And it's still changing and growing in population. The one constant, the district's representative on the Charlotte City Council. Patsy Kinsey, and um, I think this is my 14th year. She's right. Kinsey was first elected back in 2003. And Patsy Kinsey has made a name for herself among Democrats in her district and the city as a whole. When Mayor Anthony Fox was picked to be Secretary of Transportation in the Obama administration, the Charlotte City Council picked Patsy Kinsey to serve the rest of his term as mayor. As an influential Democrat running in a deep blue district, Kinsey isn't used to seeing a political challenger come election season. It's, it's been a while. Eight years to be precise, and she won that race by 34 points. 
The first district is so packed with Democrats that no Republican is running for the seat this year. So the battle for Little Charlotte will be decided by the September 12th primary and not the November election. And this year, two other Democrats will join Patsy Kinsey on the ballot. One is the definition of a long shot candidate. Robert Mitchell has no campaign website. His campaign Facebook page has just 60 followers at last check. Not exactly the kind of challenger incumbents lose sleep over. But the other challenger is a serious contender and elicited this response from Kinsey when he entered the race. Oh, well, I was disappointed. I wasn't surprised, but I was disappointed. And why is that? Because the young man running against me had told me that he wanted to run, but he wouldn't run until I retired. It's time to meet that young man. Larkin Eggleston, I am 34, and I'm running for Charlotte City Council District 1. In modern American politics, primary challengers to solid incumbents can usually be lumped into one of two categories. The first is paper partisans. They may be registered in the same party, but they're really political outsiders. That does not describe Eggleston. Yeah, I've been uh, president of the Young Democrats in Mecklenburg County. I'm a member of the state executive committee for the North Carolina Democratic Party. Um, And last year was a delegate to the Democratic National Convention in Philadelphia. The second category is a primary challenger from a very different wing of the same party. Again, that's not the case here. Take the hot button issue of LGBT rights. So I should be quite honest, uh, my opponent is very much a defender of LGBT rights, as am I. That's Larkin Eggleston at a forum for new candidates only, a place where it's easy to trash talk the incumbent. He didn't. So I don't think that there is a big difference in terms of our philosophies or our beliefs. Uh, And I would not stand up here and lie to you and say that that she's not a champion for LGBT rights in the same way that I feel like I am. The similarities don't end there. I asked both of these Democrats the same question. What is your political pitch? And got pretty similar answers. For me, that's affordable housing. I've worked in the area of affordable housing for years. Transportation. Our transportation system. And that's preservation. And preservation to me is not only preservation of historic places, but it's preservation of neighborhoods and preservation of the people in those neighborhoods that have been there for 30, 40, 50 years and helped build them to be what they are now. The inner city neighborhoods all all around the inner city are really important. And I'm very um, cognizant of the fact that they need continued protection. Because of all the infill housing, everything, all the development, I'm anxious to, to maintain their character. So, yeah, they share a lot of views, but there are some key differences as well. Patsy Kinsey, like all but one other member of the Charlotte City Council, is a baby boomer. Larkin Eggleston is a millennial, the fastest growing demographic in Charlotte, an important group of voters Eggleston sees as underrepresented. We want diversity in our local elected boards because we are a diverse community. So in the same way that no one would think it was a good idea for any of our elected bodies to be all white, all black, all Hispanic, all any race, or all male or all female, I don't think it's a good idea for our elected bodies to be all of one age group. Patsy Kinsey anchors her response with a common incumbent refrain. Experience. My experience, not only in the area, but my experience on city council. And my track record, so that those are the kinds of things. I mean, I've got the institutional knowledge about what goes on in the city. I know who to go to. Then there's the always thorny issue of constituent services. 
Here's challenger Larkin Eggleston. To me, the primary job of a local elected official is to return phone calls, return emails, be at community meetings, and not just when you're running for re-election and you have an opponent. Patsy Kinsey's response has a bit of, oh, bless his heart, in its tone. I think sometimes when people don't have anything else to talk about, that they look for something like that. I've gone to every neighborhood meeting since I was elected. She walked that back a bit by adding she does have to rotate for meetings that take place on the same night. Now, we'll talk more about this a little later on because I want to take you to a place that embodies so much of this primary fight. And it's lovely. The place, not the fight. The place has beautiful gardens to start. But since we're about to get to the bare-knuckle part of the story, we should retire to a more appropriate setting. Billy Madelon politely guides us to the perfect spot. And we're sitting in the great room uh, now of the Van Landingham Estate, or the living room. Um, there are two formal rooms in the front of the inn. One is the parlor, that's where the women uh, long ago would have retired to after supper. And uh, we're in the living room where the men would have retired to um, for cocktails or cigars or something. These cigars and scotch. A little, sure. ru- a little rougher, right. And to understand this fight, we need to put politics aside for a bit and bring you the backstory, way back, in fact. Ralph and Susie Harwood Van Landingham built the Van Landingham estate in 1913. Ralph moved his wife and twin son and daughter to Charlotte from Georgia. His decision evolved when his father invited him to join his cotton brokerage firm in Charlotte. Though already quite wealthy, the move occurred at the time of the big textile boom, making the cotton brokerage industry and the Van Landinghams even more prosperous. It was actually Susie that helped draw the plan. From that point on, the Van Landingham estate stayed in the family for a while, then it was sold and sold again. Let's skip ahead to the late 90s. Billy Madelon and his partners already owned the Moorhead Inn in Dilworth. In 1999, they decided to buy the Van Landingham estate to run as an upscale inn and reception venue, taking out a loan to buy the five-acre site. For years, we broke even, and uh, that, was, that was good enough. That was, um, the Moorhead made money, the estate broke even. The Van Landingham was a labor of love for Billy Madelon. After all, he and his partners spent more than a million dollars to refurbish and renovate the historic building and grounds. But by the mid-2000s, the property was losing money consistently, and Madelon began to feel the pains of this labor of love financially. You can't sell enough sleep with nine guest rooms, and you can't host enough weddings and social events uh, to, to, to cover the cost of your property taxes, maintenance and upkeep, your landscape. So he hired a consultant to look with objective eyes at every option. And it ran the gambit from sell it, tear it down, build houses on the five acres, all the way to do nothing much at all, just be a bit of better businessman, sell more stuff and charge people as much as you possibly can. But to Madelon, one option stood out, one that would not touch the historic house or gardens. We own two adjacent residential homes that abut this property to make up the five acres. He could sell those homes to a developer and use the money to pay off the note on the rest of the property. Now, if I'm debt-free, 
your goals. That changes everything for me. So Madelon started the process, found a buyer who wanted to build townhomes on that portion of the site, and that is when Plaza Midwood residents came to his door. But they weren't asking him to stop. And then the community came to me and said, would you be willing to consider locating a community pool complex on the property as well? And do you mind if we hire a consultant just to take a look at it and see if it's feasible? And of course, I said, are you paying for it? And they said, yeah. And they did. Residents got a grant from the city to pay for that consultant. Yep, it could work, the consultant found. So Madeline said, okay, let's do it. Then residents bought membership to the pool to cover construction costs. That's not to suggest that everybody in the community was supportive because everybody in Plaza Midwood can't agree on what time it is. I mean, this is a bohemian community. But where they found complaints, Madelon made changes to the project, all in an effort to gain as much support as possible, not just for the part of the project he wanted, but the pool project as well. And he ran all the official gauntlets until both had the approval of all the key committees and boards. Historic landmarks, historic district, the zoning committee of the planning commission, the neighborhood association, and the city planning staff, okay? We had five check marks in our boxes and they had approved the plan as is. And here is where politics start to work its way back into this story. Here comes the vote. Remember that zoning meeting at the top of the episode? First, we'll hear a brief presentation from the staff to give us background on the petition. By now, you've probably guessed I did not pick that at random. It happened on October 19th, 2015. The Van Landingham project, pool and townhomes, was indeed on the docket. Just before that vote, what were you thinking? Well, we felt very good going into that vote. I've been on city council myself, so I, I know how the process works, and I can count votes. Then, Madelon's lawyer got a call from a city attorney just hours before the vote was to take place. They're asking if you would be willing to split the zoning decision. Meaning kill the pool, but keep the townhome development. And remember, the community was behind the former. Madelon was most interested in the latter. He recounts the decision he had to make. If I did that now, I'll have to move. I spent all these people's money. I got all the, the neighborhood all ginned up and, and, and excited and encouraged and ready for this project. And then I'm going to, at the last minute, pull their part of the project out. And I, and I get my part of the project, the townhome's done. So I get my money and they lose theirs. It lacked the integrity necessary to say yes. So Madelon said no. The council would have to approve or kill both projects together. The first council member to speak on the project was Claire Fallon. If we had modified it to the point of just putting in townhouses, it would have made me happy. I cannot vote for it with a pool. Next came then Mayor Pro Tem, Michael Barnes. He too was a no. But Madelon was still optimistic. Why? Well, something then-council member David Howard said during that vote illustrates it best. Howard uttered the unutterable. 
he said out loud what has long been an unwritten rule of the council. Because of the complexities of this one, I am going to support whatever the district rep does tonight, and I've told her that. So. In other words, council members outside the district where a project is proposed often follow the vote of that district's representative. They, the thinking goes, will know what's best for that district and for that property. And this is politics, so yes, there's some horse trading involved. Madelon knows this unwritten rule well, almost as well as he knows District 1 Councilwoman Patsy Kinsey, whose vote now mattered more than ever. This has been a struggle for me, and it has because I know the petitioner, longtime friend, I know his family. Uh, so I've really gone back and forth on this. Uh, in the end, I have to vote my conscience. Kinsey voted no. Her conscience, she told the audience, was not comfortable with the pool in that location. And I said, this is unbelievable. Billy Madelon was blindsided. Because she, the, the pool was located in, a, in the spot that it was located in because of her. It's, she's the one that told us to put it there. The proposed pool site had been moved to a different spot on the property at the request of Patsy Kinsey, at a cost of more than $60,000 for the neighbors who were footing the bill. In a million-dollar pool project, maybe $60,000 isn't a lot of money, but in a million-dollar pool project that doesn't happen, $60,000 is a lot of money because it's $60,000 that doesn't get returned to those people when we make refunds. Councilwoman Kinsey confirms she suggested the new site for the pool as a possible way to help ease council concerns about the project. Madelon did refund the rest of the money. And people were angry with Patsy Kinsey. Here is where constituent services come back into play. Billy Madelon says Kinsey was a no-show. Not only didn't she show up for any of those community meetings, she wouldn't respond to anybody's emails. People were emailing her and calling her saying, what did you do? Why did you vote the way you voted? Could you please explain it to me? And she didn't respond. But Patsy Kinsey did get them. I, I cannot tell you the ugly emails I got, the, the cruel emails I got. Now, this is, of course, part of being a public servant, in theory at least. You face your constituents even when they're angry. You explain your vote, says challenger Larkin Eggleston. Even when you're going to vote in a way that's going to upset people, I think they'll respect you a lot more, and it's a better process in general to just be transparent and say, I have issues with this plan, here's what my issues are, rather than allowing someone to believe you feel a certain way and then going in and making a last-minute change um, with little to no explanation. Incumbent Patsy Kinsey says her vote didn't come out of nowhere. She points to what she calls her strong reservations about the project expressed in some committee meetings. Still, today, she seems conflicted about the vote. I could have voted yes, and it would have still failed. Um, and I, but my, I, my conscience wouldn't let me do that. And, and, and I, I did tell one of my friends who lives in Boston Midwest, I said, you know, I guess maybe I should have just voted yes. Um, but I think, I think, well, I, I, I just couldn't do it. So did the angry emails from constituents go too far or did Patsy Kinsey duck the heat? 
Honestly, I can't answer that. If you live in Plaza Midwood, you probably have already made up your mind, or you know someone who can help you do so. As to the broader question of constituent services, does Patsy Kinsey go to all the meetings, or is Larkin Eggleston right? If you live in District 1, the best way for you to find out is to ask your neighborhood association. But in a moment, I will ask our political consultants as well. But before that, I want to wrap up the Van Landingham Estate saga. And yes, I think saga is a fair word to use. Shortly after the vote, Billy Madelon put the property up for sale, and he's received some offers. But most are looking to bulldoze the historic building and gardens. So Madelon is holding out, hoping to find a buyer who will protect the property before his cash runs out. For a long time, Billy Madelon and Patsy Kinsey were friends. He proudly voted for her and put her yard signs out for all to see. Those days are gone. Now there are new yard signs in front of the Van Landingham estate. They read, vote Larkin Eggleston. I do think that having a, a young, energetic, fresh set of eyes in District 1 brings a lot of possibilities for our communities. Up next, we ask our political strategists just what they make of this race and the claims of both challenger and incumbent, plus constituent question time. That's when Candidate Me continues. All right, folks, Candidate Me is finally back, which means so is our completely biased bipartisan panel of political hacks. In the red corner is Republican strategist Larry Shaheen. Yeehaw to you, Larry. Mm -hmm. And in the blue corner is Democratic strategist Dan McCorkle. Welcome back. Native Southerner. Howdy doody. Howdy doody. All right. So we are talking all about Charlotte's first district this episode, the fight in first. And again, there are no Republicans running for that seat, Larry. Mm -hmm. So only one election counts for that district, and that's on September 12th. Democrat Dan, I'm going to start with you since this is a Democratic district with only Democratic candidates. That's right. How do you handicap the race between Patsy Kinsey and Larkin Eggleston? Understand first, District 1, it is Dilworth, it is Elizabeth, it is Plaza Midwood, it is Chantilly. It is very deep Democratic areas, very, if you have to say there's a liberal part of Charlotte, it's District 1. It's one of the most economically and culturally diverse areas in town. It's where the cool kids live. It's where I live. Um, <laughs> and Patsy Kinsey has been the district rep there since 2003. Now, the interesting thing that's developing there is Patsy has the neighborhood leader. She always has. She has the people endorsements. Uh, Larkin is getting the institutional endorsement. So it's going to be a classic replay of probably 2005. Uh, Patsy developed a Democratic Challenger in 2005. It had to do with the arts and science funding. It had to do with her supporting, of all folks, Greg Phipps uh, for a fill-in position in District 4 hmm. when Malcolm Graham went up to, um, to Raleigh and when he got elected. So there was a very div uh, divisive uh, vote to fill in 
to, to pick the fill-in candidate in 2005. Well, I remember that now. And so yeah, Patsy, Patsy got a lot of criticism from fellow Democrats, even though Greg Phipps is a Democrat. She got a lot of flack for supporting him over some other Democrats, to put it, put it one way. And so she developed a primary opponent named Hardin Minor, who's a local celebrity, a local entertainer. Uh, he's even a mime. I mean, come on, I got a mime running against how, me. How do you, I have to ask, yeah. how, how do you get the endorsement of a mime? <laughs> I, I don't know. I guess it's very silent but powerful, I guess. And so Pat, oh. but Patsy had a uh, – that was a very tough race, and Patsy ended up winning that. Uh, was the, it, I, it was less than – it was like 60 votes or 70 votes or something like that. It was a very small margin down to the last precinct. A lot of the Democratic Party did not support her in that election, but she persisted and won. But here we are in 2017. Well, and I want to ask you about this, and I'm going to challenge your assumption or your statement there, Dan, okay. just a little bit. Because right. I've looked at her website when I was looking at endorsements, and we'll talk about the institutional right. endorsements here in a moment. But most of her endorsements on the neighborhood level that you talk about are actually from past presidents of neighborhood associations. There are some current ones there, don't get me right. wrong, but they're mostly from past presidents. Does that still carry weight? It still carries weight. Especially, I mean, though, given the fact that the, the first district, as you said, it's where all the, the hip kids are living, and there's lots of people moving in. That is actually a very good point. I mean, she does have the endorsement of some, some folks like Harvey Gantt, Cindy Patterson. Absolutely. And, and folks of that nature. Um, now, what you're talking about is a very interesting phenomenon. I mean, uh, the district literally changes every day. If you look what they've done on uh, Central Avenue, those giant condos and apartments go up, three or 400 unit uh, buildings that people like Larry love, uh, developer world. Mm-hmm. Um, and who are those yeah, folks? Like, who are those yeah, folks I'm moving like, in? Are those folks moving in the hipsters, the the twenty and thirty somethings that are paying like two thousand dollars for like a one bedroom? So bitter about it. <laughs> it's a good thing. <laughs> They've chased all the good hippie folks away. Oh man! Um, who are those folks? Are they are they registered? Are they going to vote? If they do vote, it can make a real difference because what Larkin needs. If if this is the same old folks that vote every time in the Democratic primary. Patsy's going to win. If Larkin gets those new folks out, those new folks that represent Larkin's thirty-four years old, I believe. Mm-hmm. The average age of charlatans is thirty-four. You know, if the fifties and sixties and seventies folks vote in the normal numbers, the Patsy numbers. will win. If Larkin gets that extra piece out, it's a real, real race to the end. All right, so Larry, I know you're twitching to say something here, I'm, and I will twitching. let you. I will let you in a second. But what you've said is. If they mobilize their base, they will win. Handicap the race, Dan. Who if, do you think if, who has, is the favorite here? Patsy is the favorite, but Larkin has a very strong opportunity. If the folks that don't normally vote in off-year elections vote. All right, Larry. What do you think the average age of the voter is early voting so far? Probably in the 60s. It is in the 60s. Yeah. It's 62. Yeah. Early average? Because I pulled the numbers yesterday, mm-hmm. and I don't know what the, after after uh, – because the board of elections updates every every day, so I haven't pulled this morning. As of yesterday, through one, two, three, four days of early voting, five days, no, four days, because they wouldn't have updated it through Wednesday. Oh, I, did, I got the updates here. Yeah, go you ahead. don't have the average age. Oh, okay. average age was around sixty-three. Okay, well, it's gone up a year. It's gone up a year. That could be a ninety-year-old woman. That, or something. That's right, but that's across all districts. Now the question is, what what's the number in District One? Because here's there's two there's two pieces of this that makes me think that both of them can win. And that's why I can't handicap this race. 
I have immense amount of respect for both these folks, and that's the Republicans saying that Patsy Kinsey and Larkin Eggleston are both wonderful individuals. And this is the nature of politics is that sometimes there's conflict, and this is one of them. So who do I think will win? I don't know, but I can tell you where I think this race is probably going to go. More than likely, Larkin is not going to increase turnout. That's not a possibility. He well, it's not, a he's possibility, not spending, he's not it's, spending it's enough unusual. money. He's not spending enough money. He's not. That's not what Larkin's doing. Larkin's trying to convince the voters that have always voted for Patsy not to vote for. That's what's happening here. That's a hard thing. That's a hard thing to do, especially after how many years? Uh, whatever two thousand three was. What fourteen long, years? Fourteen years. That's and long and time. before that on the county commission. County commission. So. Long time. Yeah. So the question that we have to ask ourselves here is. Can he convince a liberal, older, white female to leave Patsy? That has cats. And, sorry. <laughs> it has lots of cats. They don't always have to have cats. They can have dogs, too. Oh, it's a very dog uh, very, district. Very area. discriminatory of you, Dan. I love my job. <laughs> That's the question. And if and, and this is, it's almost the same kind of question that Republicans ask, because Republicans always ask me, how do we win? I'm like, how do you convince the middle-aged liberal mom to vote for you. All right. Well, let's let's throw this. One of the key things here is is all about age. Yeah. Since we're talking about age, let's deal with the M question here, which is the millennial voters. Again, Larkin I'm sorry, is. Do they exist? Well, that's my question. No, but he they don't. he is a millennial. Right. He is one of a wave of millennials mm-hmm. who are running for office. Mm-hmm. In not just this district, but at, at large and in, in a bunch of different districts. Oh yeah, like I said, Dempelage Mayor is already on the. But she's city council and she's running at large. Yeah, and but she's right. the only millennial that's currently on the council, and she was appointed. Right, it's not elected. So, do millennial voters have the sway to start voting their own onto the council? Not yet. Well, and and uh, yeah. and a thing that's interesting, and and I love millennials. Yeah, right. Okay. Um, I'm sorry. Let's go back to this average age. What's the average age of? Uh, okay, but listen. Yeah, sixty-three. Sixty-three. But, but one thing about millennials is how, and this is a big thing uh, in some of my campaigns I'm on right now, is do they they don't understand the importance of city and county government. They watch a lot of national news. They know national issues. They could talk about I don't know NAFTA or something like that, but they don't understand how important. The local elected officials are, and it's an education process. You know, I always tell them that a city council member can do more for you than the president right now. And can They're hurt potholes, you streets, more. taxes, uh, police, fire, etc. But they can also build, money, help, police. keep, maintain the roads, Larry, and do all happen? the all the wonderful things and, government does. Yeah. And yeah. we devolve very quickly. <laughs> yes, here you know, go, government. Larry, did you drive here on a private road or anyway, drive here on a government gentlemen, road? <laughs> so. I, we know what Larry thinks. Dan, do you think that they will come out in significant numbers to alter this election? It depends if there's a trigger issue to get them out. I mean, it's like, oh, yes, vote for Larkin. He's, he's young like you. Is that going to do it? No. I mean, there's no there's no fear. There's no stress. It took Barack Obama to make that happen in 2008, and then it barely happened again in 2012. I do not but think I can, that that's going to happen. I can guarantee you, I mean, in his campaign structure, I'm sure he has to be targeting those. It's easy to target now. We can get any data we want in, in moments so I would assume that he is targeting people in their 20s and 30s, maybe with not such a good history of voting and somehow trying to persuade them to vote. All right. Uh, we've got a lot more we want to, I want to get through here, and I know your guys' time is short. But here is another issue that was brought up earlier in this podcast, and it is, as I said before, always a thorny one. Constituent services. Ah. 
Patsy Kinsey says she goes to all of the community meetings. Her challenger, Larkin Eggleston, says you deserve a, a representative who goes to your meetings, not just when they're running for office. I don't live there. I don't know who's right. Yeah, you're going to have to answer that one. I'm curious if you guys can answer this. My, uh, I know in the past you did because I know that um, she'd always go to Windsor Park. You know, she'd always go to Chantilly. She would always go to those neighborhood meetings, Midwood. I I don't know in the last couple of years because I stopped going to them. So, if she continually goes to those meetings, then the folks know that and see her. If she's not, then they don't. I've had candidates in the past that started out going to neighborhood meetings and being there and being constituent services, when they got so wrapped up in the uptown, let's build a new stadium type stuff, they stopped going to those neighborhood meetings. That's right. Now, remember, we're dealing with low turnout. I mean, even a, uh, say, a 4% turnout is only 2,400 voters. Hmm. So you're not talking about a lot of folks. You're talking about activists. You're talking about plugged-in people. They're going to be voting. What, 5,000 votes, maybe? If we're, if, we're, if we're lucky, 5,000 will be an 8% turnout. And so we'll see. So... Believe me, the neighborhood leaders know who comes to their mm-hmm. meetings. They will judge accordingly. Constituent service trumps everything. If the people know that you're going to respond to them and that you're going to be there for them and take care of their issue, guess what? They don't care about anything else. That is, People are – and I'm going to say that voters are selfish. Is he going to take care of me? Hmm. He takes care of me or she takes care of me. I'm going to vote for that person. So we talked a, a lot about um, Patsy Kinsey's endorsements from, from neighborhood folk. Let's yeah. fall back again on the endorsements that Larkin Eggleston has received, which is the Observer, which is the black political, political caucus, caucus of Charlotte-Mecklenburg. What's, the, what's this new group? That he's new South Progressive. New that's, South. Ray, that's Reverend Rayshawn McKinnon. Oh, yeah. okay. oh and yeah. then I love you, Ray, but no. And then you've got more like the firefighters. You've got— who do, who do they endorse in that, right? Larkin. Wow. I didn't see that. How big of a deal are these, as you call them, Dan, these institutional endorsements? If they don't have any muscle behind it, they're useless. I mean, I love uh, some of the groups you mentioned, but I know that uh, that one group in particular, they endorse you and you can use their logo, but they never lift a finger, never give you money, never work a poll for you. So, And what the firefighters will do is they'll actually have people at the polls handing stuff out for you, saying, I'm a firefighter and I support so-and-so. Le- limit, limited. They don't have the that resources makes, because makes it, you know firemen work very hard and work yeah, very long do. shifts. So. Now, the Observer endorsement has, has power among the folks that read the Observer opinion editorial pages. So that's that's where that matters. That matters less among Republican primary voters than it does among Democratic primary voters. It, it matters still, in the Providence corridor. Still, it, still, it matters in Myers Park. It matters in Myers Park, which is where— Which is part of this district. Yeah, this district. All the, so that matters. But the, what about Mecca? Has MECPAC made their endorsements? They have. Ooh. And MECPAC has endorsed Patsy Kinsey. Because of her vote. Because they know she'll stick. It's a, it's a long, it's a history of, of and, being. And uh, for people who don't know, MECPAC is an LGBT yeah, advocacy organization. Advocacy so let's see if we can get the first district turnout above. 8%. 8%. That's a, that seems like a fair goal. It'll be 4,800 people. All right, 4,800 people, go vote. And remember, Democrats and affiliates. And you all listen. We know you listen to the station. Go vote. That's right. They all have their coffee Here mugs, and they all, all they right. do the pledge drive stuff. These are pledge drive yeah. people in District 1. It is now question time, and we've got a bunch to go through because yeah. I have been in jury they, duty, but now I'm finally back. We won't get to all of them. We will get to these, them yeah, These are yes or no questions? Uh, well, no. Um, <laughs> the first one has to do with someone I mentioned at the top of this episode, who is Robert Mitchell, who is a Democrat running in the 1st District, ah, but is also a very yeah. long-shot candidate. Now, the, the, the question time. is not specific to him but to those kind of long-shot candidates. 
The question is, why are there so many candidates willing to file the paperwork and pay the filing fee who then do not put together an actual campaign? Aha, I got this one because I'll tell you this. Because they get to be on stage, well, it gives you a platform. It gives you a couple months in which you can push your issues, and it gives you a couple months in which you're important, and you get... We have a candidate for school board right now who filed for District 5, who just decided and went down there and said, and he he has publicly said, and I, I have no problem with him, he's a nice guy, he's a good Republican, but said, I'm only running because it gives me an opportunity to get out there and get my issues out there. He's not really. He's not. Putting and, and you never know. Sometimes your name can 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 draw folks. If his name is Mitchell, I mean, who knows? Well, and that's the other <laughs> point. Oh, that's an it's interesting low point. Low turnout. You never know. And, and this is the, this is the other thing. This is the other fun part about this. You know who frust- who this frustrates more than anybody else? Guys like Larkin. We're talking about the first district. You got to talk about guys like Larkin. If the guy gets well, Larkin, two, will never admit it. And he's three percent of the vote. He'll that could be the difference. It. He steals three percent. This guy steals three percent of the vote, and it was going to go to it was going to go to Larkin. Otherwise, Larkin could win. Because it's going to be close. Yeah. We had somebody, uh, just real quick, uh, run against uh, Joel Ford. An, un- an un- unknown person ran for Senate uh, in a primary against Joel Ford, got 48% of the vote. Yeah. I was stunned by that. Wow. Because the guy didn't even show up. I mean, he just put his he name in about. The Republicans had a candidate run for against uh, Superior Court Judge oh, Bob Bell yeah, I remember. in 2014. The guy was uh, incredibly unknown. The Republicans talked him out of running. He still got 42% of the vote. You just never know. His name sounds like a cowboy singing star, so people thought they were voting for a cowboy being Republicans that they are. (laughs) With that segue. I'm not even touching that. Next question. Are candidates really recruited to split the vote in primaries as often as people think they are? Absolutely. Do you really think so? Absolutely they are. Not on my side. Absolutely. What are you talking about? Absolutely they are. Absolutely. So, all right, let's break this down then. Who recruits them? Oh, gosh. Either people who have... Uh, you, you, here's here's the fun part. Everyone assumes that the parties are uniform and they agree with each other. Well, let, let, let me let me spill the beans for you. There are people in the Republican Party that don't like me or my candidates. There are people in the Democratic Party, Dan, that don't like you really? or your candidate. I want a list of names. And I will literally, <laughs> I, I will, there are people who will recruit other people to run against candidates that I've worked with just because they don't like me because they got beaten primaries. Mm. Okay, but that's a different motivation. Yeah, but here's the thing, though. If you can recruit a third-party candidate to play spoiler, some people just what, – what, what's the phrase from, from the Dark Knight? Some people just like to watch the world burn, and that's what, that's what they do. They'll throw somebody else in there and say, well, chaos, ha, 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 ha. That may have, may have happened in a judge race in 2016. It happens in, yeah. all the time. Huh. All right. Politics brings out some of the best in, 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 our, in our city, country, and state, and it brings out the absolute worst. Final question. This one comes from friend of the pod, Susan Roberts, and she asks, what hurdles do women and ethnic minorities face in elections, in securing nomination, in campaigning, and at the ballot box? You go. I'll deal with it. Wow. Yeah, I know. It's a tough one. It's a tough one for me because one of my current candidates is the first uh, Asian American ever on the city council. Um, So I'm uh, trying to parse my words here. Uh, in a sense, uh, you have to prove that you can be taken seriously. You have to prove that uh, you're not in there just because of your ethnicity or because you're a female. You have to work harder. You have to speak clearer. Uh, you have to be more concise in what you're trying to say. If not, you're going to get tremendous criticism. And uh, seeing some of the emails and some of the comments, it's rather remarkable that in the year 2017, 
people will judge someone clearly on the color of their skin. All right. I, I need to ask for clarification on this, Dan. Are you saying that minority candidates in particular have to basically code switch and come across as more white in no. order to succeed? No, they don't. It's it's remarkable to me, and I don't want to get too far into this, that uh, some of the folks that get elected on the issue of we're going to rebuild certain parts of town, we're going to build bring grocery stores to that part of town, we're going to increase and, and improve the infrastructure in certain parts of town. When they get in office, that soon goes out the window, and it's all about building pretty things uptown, and uh, some of that glossy talk in the campaign goes away. Republican women have it probably harder than just about anybody because it, it's the honest-to-God truth. There is no group of individuals harder to convince to elect a woman than, than, than Republican. It's just, it's just true. It is. And, 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 I, and I'll tell you this, is that Lynn Wheeler, for years and years and years and years and years, was the leader of the city, mayor pro tem, worked bipartisanly, was very intelligent. She voted for the stadium, the, the, the now Spectrum Center. And had a hundred something thousand dollars in the, in the in the bank. Close to two hundred, Larry. Lynn should have been reelected just on her record. And if and I think if Lynn had been a man, she probably would have been. But the Republican voters ousted her primarily because they didn't like that vote. They really didn't, and because there were a couple of local council members who had an axe to grind. Now Lynn's a fantastic public servant. She should never. That have was in two thousand and three, by the way. Should have never been removed. But then she tried to make a comeback and lost. She, so. Well, yes, but that's because. I, I tell you again, Republican women have it harder than anybody else. And Republican minorities, I mean, look, you got Tim Scott mm-hmm. in South Carolina. And we've got an example, I'm not going to go into specifics, we've got an example of a Republican with a different name running here in Charlotte. Mm. Okay? Yes, in a district. Republican in a district running different name. That you represent. That I represent. Tarek Scott. With three names. I have never been more disappointed in some of the questions that he has gotten. And some of the things that we have been asked. Do you believe in Sharia law? Are you Christian? Hmm. It's interesting. And, and on but, my side, are you a Muslim? Are you a Muslim? Right. And, and, and it's funny because this is, this is what you get. And you have to take it in stride. And you have to move forward. But let's, but let's talk about the reality is that it's like it, I, I saw an interesting piece on how we all need to move towards the middle and yada, yada, yada. Well, the districts that are being... Uh, represented here in Charlotte, they're not anywhere near the middle. You've got majority minority districts in two, three, four, right? And you're using the district numbers and, and there. Five, and five, my gosh, five, five, five is as diverse three, as it gets. Five. You've got four districts of the seven that are minority majority, and then at the end of the day, you've got opportunities for African Americans and, and minorities, and women. Susan Burgess was a woman who was represented Absolutely. for years and years and years. You've got uh, Viola Lyles, Mayor Pro Tem. Mm-hmm. Uh, Julie Eisholt was voted. Well, Mayor Jennifer Roberts, I mean. I don't, and honestly, this is this is where I think no. that, and I'll, I've got to give a lot of credit to the party on this. The party understands this and is, and is actively recruiting and working more women leadership. But you have to look at it from the differences of when it comes time for the general, you'd be surprised how very little sex matters or race matters. Matters more in the primary. The primary, yeah. And remember, 60, 60 plus percent of the Democratic primary voters are female, and a majority of that are African-American females. Now, the Republican Party, y'all are not doing a very good job of recruiting minorities and females. Or maybe and that's you coming from the pandering to them better. But you know, or, either way. We're not pandering to our own base. That's called 
taking care of your own base, Larry. I mean, your base is, is white guys and Cadillacs. I mean, you know, I expect you pander to them. And with that, Republican consultant Larry Shaheen and Democratic consultant Dan McCorkle, right. thank you both for coming back. All thanks. Thank you. And that's it for this episode of Candidate Me. But we do have a lot more of your questions, and we will get to those very soon. And keep sending them in. I need to keep our political hacks on their toes. Just search for Candidate Me on our website, wfae.org, and you'll see the gray question box. Next week, I'll have my tortured smile ready, or I'll yell, we did it. Just ahead of the September 12th primary, we find out what it's like to wait and wait for those all-important vote tallies. Oh, and just why it takes Mecklenburg County so long to count the votes. That's next week on Candidate Me.